This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And they work hard to help small business become big ones by fighting for public policy that allows them to do just that. And you'll definitely want to stick around for this story because it's about the man behind perhaps one of the most recognizable brands in American history, brought to us by our own Joey Cortez. The world was a little simpler a little more magical. There were more heroes, more things to, to think about. And Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, they were my heroes. They were some of my heroes. You are listening to the story of a man who you all know, but don't really know. You know his brand, so you know his name, which wasn't always his name. He was born Ralph Lifshitz, the son of two Jewish immigrant outcasts from the Soviet Union. And despite a modest upbringing in the Bronx, New York, everyone knew Ralph as the man with swagger and style. You know, I had older brothers, so, you know, when you have older brothers to live up to, in a way, you sort of, uh, you're advanced more than kids your own age. So maybe I sort of wore what my brothers wore. And and, uh, I, I never thought about style. I didn't know what that word meant. And he didn't have to. He just naturally had it. I'm telling you, every time I see a picture of this man, I think to myself, my God, that man has style. Everything about him screams style. The perfect man to stop the European fashion moguls who were ready to take control of the American fashion market. You see, at the time, there wasn't much of an American fashion industry. And while the Beatles and their British invasion were pretty much taking control of the American rock and roll scene. The European fashion icons from Italy, the United Kingdom, and France were ready to take the American fashion scene by storm. Standing in their way was Ralph Lifshitz. But first, to complete his style, Ralph, at 16 years old, would change his name from Lifshitz to Lauren. That's right, folks. This is the story of Ralph Lauren. Years later, after serving in the army, working as a salesman for Brooks Brothers, and then a necktie manufacturer, Ralph began designing his own ties, marked by his wide, bold, and colorful designs during a time when plain skinny ties were in vogue. In the beginnings, when I started, the necktie industry was full of men wearing hats, and they were old men. And it was a very dead industry and here I came along and I had a sports car and I come with a tweed jacket and I zip into my car with a bag of ties and I go to the stores around the, around the area and I, uh, I was selling what I was, what I believed in. Selling himself and the American dream. You see, Ralph really couldn't afford that sports car. I mean, the man was selling ties out of a single drawer in a showroom of the Empire State Building, but he was investing in himself, his image, his brand, something his company would make possible for everyday Americans too, helping them dress and brand themselves in lifestyles they previously couldn't afford or find in stores. From the nostalgic Americana style of cattle herding cowboys to the style 
of Wall Street bankers. Ralph made those accessible to everyday Americans. I'm inspired by a lifestyle that is, that is happy. You know, we all go through our life hoping that we're going to be successful, hoping that we're going to be able to buy the house that we want, hoping that we can have the ranch or the, you know. So I was inspired by those worlds, you know. I was inspired, the thought of being a rancher, the thought about living in a log cabin, that was one of my dreams. But also I had another dream, you know, in the reality, of, you know, of uh, I love stone houses. You know, I love Persian rugs. I like, uh, I like elegance. I like them both. And I think I, in terms of what I was doing, is I wasn't, my things are new, but they're inspired by a concept of living as, as opposed to, to fashion. It's not just a jacket. Here's a jacket. My shoulders come out here now and, and buy it now because it's the hot new look. My jacket was the tweed jacket with the suede over patches, but it was great fabric. Maybe it had a... What you thought you can buy in England, what you thought Cary Grant was wearing and Fred Astaire, you could not walk into a store and buy. You couldn't buy. You couldn't walk into a store. No store has had that. When I came along, the business was not at all like. The things that I made, you could not buy. You couldn't find it. And they had a sense of familiarity because they were traditional in the sense that they had a... They weren't wild. But they were, they were, it's like injecting something and bringing it back in a sense of life. You couldn't walk into Bloomingdale's, you couldn't walk into Saks Fifth Avenue and buy a hacking jacket. Now, a hacking jacket was worn by the people that rode, you know, England. They get dressed and they wore the hacking jacket, it had a flare on the side vents. So, one thing is the product, the other thing is, is, where it goes. A man gets dressed, he goes, he's like, I have to go to dinner. He's, uh, he goes and buys a, a tie and he wants to look elegant that night. He's going to go back to his, he's going to feel elegant when he gets dressed that night. And he's going to go to a place and he says, wait a minute, I have this great club I'm going to and I'm going to wear this and I know I'm going to look great. So he, he feels strong about himself and he knows it's the appropriate thing to wear to this place. What I did was see these things. The hacking jacket represented a life that I loved. It was old England and they looked great. I don't know what it was at the time, but I said, you know, that hacking, I'd love to have that. Right. I couldn't find it in the store. I said, where can I get that? Where can I get it? And you couldn't get it anywhere. So I said, I'd like to make that. So I made it so you can wear it. It's a sport jacket. And these things, they sound vague, possibly, because they're part of our vernacular today, but it, it didn't exist. And neither did his first product, the wide tie. Well, it existed, but it just wasn't fashionable, and you really couldn't find them in stores. But soon enough, Ralph caught the attention of one of the largest department stores in the country. From selling ties out of a single drawer in the Empire State Building, to landing a meeting with Bloomingdale's. And when we come back, you won't believe the story you're about to hear. And what a story it is. A young man fashions the fashion business in an image that he thought the American people would love, and boy, did they. Ralph Lauren's story continues here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we return to Ralph Lauren's story. We left off with him entering his first sale with a pretty big client in New York City, Bloomingdale's. We bring you back to the late 1960s, and a young, handsome, and confident Ralph Lauren arrives in a sports car to a meeting with Bloomingdale's, eager to strike a deal, but not too eager. He showed them to the Bloomingdale tie buyer. That's Marvin Traub, a former president of Bloomingdale's. Who said, I like them, I'll buy them, but I don't want that Ralph Lauren label on it. I want a Bloomingdale label. Now here's Ralph starting and struggling in business, about to get an order from Bloomingdale's. He closed his sample case and said, I will not accept the order without my name. It's a matter of staying on a path, staying in a direction, having a point of view, believing in what you're doing, and having the, the, the scope and the focus to say, this is who I want to be, this is what I like. An important lesson for entrepreneurs, betting on yourself and your product, and having the wisdom for knowing when to strike a deal and when to walk away. And good thing Ralph did, because just a few months later, he would get a call back from Bloomingdale's. Here again is Marvin Traub. I thought the ties were terrific. And if he wanted his name on it, that was fine because I felt the ties would sell. Just one year with Bloomingdale's, Ralph sold a half million dollars in ties and soon enough caught the attention of other big department stores followed by an expansion from the tie industry into upscale menswear, women's wear, lifestyle, and home products. Ralph soon became a household name around the world. By 1986, Ralph Lauren's company was worth over an estimated half billion dollars. At a glance, things were going quite well, but a look behind the scenes told another story. In 1987, just as Ralph was about to make the cover of Time magazine, he was also diagnosed with a brain tumor. At the same time as I was on the cover of Time magazine, I knew Time magazine was coming out and I knew I was going in for a brain tumor operation. I couldn't enjoy either one of them. I couldn't enjoy Time magazine. And the two the two distances of life, the fact that, that on one hand I hit the heights of one side, and the other side the impossible thing happened on Time magazine, and the impossible thing happened on Brain Tumor. How could I get a brain tumor? Where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? I look great. Where'd that come from? You know, that happens to somebody else. Time magazine happens to somebody else. I was split right in half. So. That alone was an incredible contrast in my life. Just my life has been an incredible contrast in growing up and go in my career. The heights were so hard to even deal with in a funny way. So the brain tumor coming along. Uh, fortunately, it was not. It was benign. The experience of looking at my wife and my family. I remember being being told that I have to go in for an operation. I remember seeing 
my daughter and my son were very little at the time. We were in this big open space, and I said, I can't believe this. I all of a sudden stepped out of my life and was looking at them as if I wasn't there anymore. And thankfully, Ralph had a successful surgery and came out of it with a newfound perspective on life. I was able to step away from myself and see life as something that was not always going to be here. I know the feeling of saying, I may not be around tomorrow. I have a lot of sensitivity to other people that somehow at this age, uh, I'm not groping in the world trying to be something. I know who I am. And so did the rest of the world. Just two years later, Ralph Lauren's dreams would come true when one of his childhood heroes, Audrey Hepburn, would present him with the Oscar of the fashion industry, awarding Ralph with the Council of American Fashion Designers Lifetime Achievement Award. Here's Jeff Madoff, a close business associate of Ralph Lauren. There was one of his muses, his icons, Audrey Hepburn, the woman that he watched when he was a little kid in the movies, now handing him this statue that for him could have been the Oscar. Remember the princess? I got her. <laughs> Ralph was sitting at the throne of the fashion industry, but that throne wasn't very sturdy. His company, suffering from distribution problems and massive expenditures on brand recognition, was on the road to bankruptcy. Luckily, Ralph was thrown a lifeline by Goldman Sachs, buying 28% of his company, worth over an estimated quarter billion dollars today. Soon enough, Goldman Sachs brought Ralph Lauren's company public. This scared Ralph. While Goldman helped salvage his company, allowing him to expand and open up restaurants and stores in almost every major hub around the world, and perhaps becoming one of the most recognizable brands in human history. Ralph feared that he would have less and less control over his brand. Though with bold and crafty leadership and marketing, Ralph managed to instill his undying legacy within his company, his undying style. A style marked by Ralph's nostalgia for the American West, a life of hard work, grit, and meaning, and a style marked by the future he always envisioned for himself, one of accomplishment and success, which all goes back to the very people he admired as a kid. I was very influenced by movies. I was very influenced by uh, a world that had a sense of dream, that had a sense of something else. And what I was influenced in these places was the good guy, the, 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 the Hopalong Cassidy, um, not the corny guy, but the, there was the man on the white horse. You know, if you think of a cowboy, you think of fringe jackets and old leather things. Think of a, you think of certain um, images that, that represent something that are never dying. I always liked country clothes, tweediness. I always loved my history teacher who wore gum sole shoes and suede elbow patches. Uh, so it's a combination of, of heroes, in a way, that um, had, a, had something to them. Heroes like the actors who both dressed and conducted themselves with class, and the gritty adventurous characters they played in the movies. A very unique thing 
to have a brand inspired by two entirely different worlds. If you watch Gary Cooper in the movies, you'd see Gary Cooper was a very elegant man. At the same time, he had a ranch where he grew up, uh, and you'd see, you'd see uh, High Noon, and you really believed he was a cowboy. Well, I loved this guy in both roles. You know, I, he was a hero to me, and he was rugged and tough, and at the same time, he was very elegant. And, and so it wasn't, um, you know, I don't believe you can live, you can have to be one thing. Like the American dream, a notion that has allowed people to not only dream for a different life, but to attain it. Illustrated by the very life of Ralph Lauren and his company, helping people from around the world be the people they dream to be. You know, I think what's been interesting in, in, in my life is the impossible things have happened in so many different ways. I never went to fashion school. What am I doing here? You know, what am I doing on these lists? What am I doing with these fashion shows? How am I doing it? I can't tell you because it's an amazing thing for me. It's not, I'm doing it. I know I'm doing it because it didn't exist before I came. I didn't, it didn't happen before and someone said, okay, Ralph, do it. And I've done products that I never, I didn't have any training. I don't know how it's happening. It's an amazing thing for me. At the same time, I don't know how I had the brain too and all those things. But life is about that in a way. A, a fellow I work with that came at the office said, it was from another company, said, he said, you know, up till now I thought I had to change in this world, in this business, because people are tough and rough, you know, and they're not always so nice. He said, I was just in your company, I was working with your people, and they're so nice. You know, I think maybe, maybe I have the right answer. Maybe people aren't all that tough in this business. My sense is that you can make your life be whatever you want it to be. And great job on that, Joey. Impossible things have happened in my life. He never went to fashion school. He said no to Bloomingdale's in his early 20s. He wanted his name on the label. Crazy, right? Goldman Sachs, by the way, comes in, the big bad banks, and saves the company. The American dream here, that's what we call these stories, American dreamer stories, none better than Ralph Lauren's. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and our next story is about a man named Bruce Wang. He's Chinese-born, a college student in Texas, and he learned a southern accent by watching, of all things, Duck Dynasty, and got a job as a cowboy on a ranch. As you're about to hear, Bruce may be Chinese-born, but he's all American. Here's Bruce Wang to tell his story. Hi, friends and partners. It's been my great honor to be invited by Mr. Greg Engler to be on the show and talk about my experience here in America. My name is Shibo Wang, but I also go with Bruce. When school is on, I am a graduate student at Texas Tech University, but when there's no school, I am a feedlot cowboy 
As some of y'all may not expect, that I am actually from China, and it's kind of rare to see an Asian cowboy across the country. Well, if you come to West Texas, if you see one, that might be me. I am from Kunming, Yunnan, Southwest China, and the city where I came from has the nickname of the City of Eternal Spring, meaning that the weather in my hometown is always like spring all year round. So in a sense, I was a southerner in China that came to the States and became a southerner again. But this transformation was not as smooth as some people might assume because no matter where you live, life is not always easy. About eight years ago, I said goodbye to my parents, got on an airplane, and then came here to the States, set my foot on soil of America. The very first state that I went to for college was the state of Oklahoma. And we got on this minivan from the airport, and the driver just took us to the campus. And I know on the map, it said Oklahoma City. So I've been sitting in that minivan for a long time, and all I saw was just flatness and houses that were separated from each other as if they did not have business with each other, which is kind of shocking to me. But what really made me uncomfortable, at least in the state of Oklahoma, was when it came down to food. For one and a half years, I put chocolate pudding on my pizza and my burgers. The reason was I just couldn't get used to the taste of American food for that period of time. But whatever I did, I found a way to compromise so I could eat burgers and go to school at the same time. The state of Oklahoma was very welcoming to foreign students like me. Local people were really friendly, and I didn't feel the need to integrate much at that point because I had a lot of friends from other countries, other continents, and I was fine at that time. After the second year of me being in college, one day my mom called and said, well, son, you need to transfer to a bigger university with a better engineering program. Well, I thought to myself, well, I've been here for more than two years and I had some fun and it won't hurt to go to other parts of the United States and just see the rest of this country. So I agreed. Initially, I was planning to transfer to the University of Wyoming. However, my mentor at the time called me. Back in the old days, he and his wife both worked at the university where I went to school for in Oklahoma. But then his wife came to Texas for her PhD program, so he followed her. Then he called me and tried to convince me to come down to Texas. I said, no way, because in my mind, and upon all my understanding of all the stereotypes of Texas, this is one of the least places I would ever want to come. But eventually, I thought about it and reflected upon my experiences with so-called racism in America, then eventually came to the conclusion that the most important determining factor of my happiness is me, not someone else. 
So once that thought kicked in, I decided to say, you know what? Why can't I just give Texas a try? Man, my mentor came to Oklahoma. We loaded up my stuff, and we were on our way to Texas. Unfortunately, when I got to Texas, things had a downturn. There were more churches. It was a bigger campus, which made it more difficult to make friends. And after the first semester, since I transferred school to Texas, I decided to drop out. Because coming to a bigger university with a better engineering program made me realize I had zero interest for being an engineer. And I just did not see any point for continuing my higher education. So my mentor asked me to go to his office at the International Cultural Center. And I sat there. He basically lectured me in a mildly loud southern accent. For some strange reason, I decided to stay in college and just to finish. So at that point, I was no longer an engineering student. I switched my major to interdisciplinary studies, which contained three minors instead of a major. And during that summer, my appendix was about to burst, so I had to go to the hospital and have a surgery. And during my stay at the hospital, I had some rare opportunities to just completely be surrounded by quietness. I couldn't move much in my bed. I would watch TV from time to time. But there was this one day when it was about to rain outside. I saw clouds getting thicker and thicker. And then raindrops started to tap on my window. Everything else was just quiet. And that was the moment I thought about how wrongly I judged myself, how wrongly I judged a society that I didn't even know. And in what other way can I further learn about this society by integrating myself into it? The semester after that summer, I went to a rodeo, and that was life-changing. The things that changed me was not necessarily the events that were going on during the rodeo, but all the people and animals that were part of the show. There was country music playing at the background, and the host had a very thick yet authentic West Texan accent. I remember seeing this little boy, probably only seven or eight year old, with a cowboy hat on, and he was in charge of that gate which controlled the movement of all the other cattle, which were at least five or six times his body size. Yet, he was calm and professional. And for all the participants with their animals, I was amazed by the relationships that were formed between two-legged creatures and four-legged creatures. Roughly about a month after the rodeo, I got my first pair of cowboy boots and my cowboy hat. And when I put that hat on, I couldn't remember how much regret that just went through my body. I thought hard about how dumb I was for not embracing this culture earlier and wasted so much time on things that were not important. So from that point on, my integration to this region of the southern parts of the United States started. And you're listening to Bruce Wang tell his story. And 
his confession that he had wasted so much time on things that did not matter and that he had had his own brand of prejudice and refused for the longest time to overcome it and to just go with the flow, learn the culture, adopt the culture, or at least learn to appreciate the culture. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Bruce. This remarkable American story. By the way, there aren't many American Chinese, but there are a whole lot of Chinese Americans. With that thought, we continue this story, Bruce Wang's story, an immigrant song as good as we've ever heard here on Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories with the story of Bruce Wang. And this is an all-American immigration story, if ever we've had one. And by the way, if you have an immigration story in your family's history or just in town that you think is worthwhile, send the suggestion to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll run down the contact and do the storytelling. Your stories and the ones that are near your houses and homes and communities are some of our favorites. Now let's return to Bruce Wang and his story. I believe one of the most important things that a person can ever do to integrate him or herself into a community is to talk like the community. So initially I thought it would be funny to be an Asian person with a southern accent. I made some jokes by speaking with a southern accent in front of my classmates and everybody laughed. I thought it was fun. So I started to look for more materials to enhance my ability to speak like a southerner. But what I found during this process of learning, the more I learned, the more of an affection I developed for southern accents. And even though before I was able to communicate with people in the English language, but learning the accent would open up new windows for me to look at America. One of the first learning materials that I used was a video on YouTube of Jeff Foxworthy. But as kind of a spokesman for this portion of the population, I got to thinking, you know, it has reached the point where we do need a few redneck fashion tips. <laughs> if you've mastered the art of putting on makeup with your non-smoking hand, while driving with your knee. Then I did more research on how people talk in the state of Georgia. Then eventually I found that the residents around the Appalachian Mountain area have the type of accents that melted my heart most of the time. What I further learned was that the region was devastated by poverty for decades and there were people in poverty that I would never imagine that I would see in America but it was real. Learning about how people suffering that region really made me connect with the accents better. Why? Because if you think about it, all of the good old classical literatures, what they reveal is suffering from people regardless of culture, 
you know, regardless of the country. People's suffering might me resonate more with them because there are things that were very similar between the Appalachian Mountain region and my home province. Where I came from, we were surrounded by mountains, and in a sense, we are the urbanized hillbillies in China. And typically, we're about 10 or 20 years behind the most developed area in China. And based on what I learned about the Appalachian Mountain region, those people's suffering made me resonate more with them and also made southern accents dear to me. And that was the point I decided to further master the accent. The backwoods of Louisiana is now home to a new breed of millionaire, my family. Ah! Pretty scary, huh? And somewhere down the line, this show came to my attention. Duck Dynasty. Amen. On the surface, it may seem like that. The show was about a bunch of rantnecks shooting ducks. But what really goes deeper, the show touches about Christianity, about family, and a unity of a community, which I believe are great values that are echoed among many other countries, including China. Again, I could resonate with people in the show and which excavated more passion out of me to learn the accent. Throughout this journey of learning the accent, I laid my eyes on things that I would never look at if I kept a judgmental attitude towards the American society and would never found comfort in knowing, listening, and speaking another accent that is so native yet important to some of the forgotten regions of America. Even though I was fascinated by how all the rednecks lived in Duck Dynasty, I didn't realize, for me as a foreigner, it would be hard to put my hands on a firearm and shoot ducks. So I started to think of other ways that I could do to further southernize myself by integrating myself not only linguistically, but economically. Then it's not too hard to notice there are a lot of cattle here in West Texas, and cowboys, at least according to Hollywood, is one of the most iconic images of America, and to some degree, the southern parts of America too. So I decided to try and get into the cattle industry. At first, what I did was just to drive up to some ranch or feed yard and have some conversations with people who are in the beef cattle industry. And all I did was just chatting with them. I took some pictures of cattle and made some of my videos on their properties. And at that time, that's all I thought what I could do. However, I was very amazed and really appreciate how welcoming people in the beef cattle industry were in West Texas to me. So, after building relationships for one and a half years, one day I got a call from a feedlot owner and he got a lot more cattle going into his property and he needed some help. So I got my paperwork lined up and done at the International Cultural Center and then I had my way to become a cowboy. The training was not easy. I made a lot of mistakes, get screamed at a lot, and yes, like many other cowboys out there, there were times that I thought about quitting. Now, thinking back, 
I'm glad I didn't do that. Still was a hard laugh. Every day started early in the morning, and you won't get done until the sun goes down, and sometimes we would be still working when the moon is up and high. However, I would not trade anything with the experience I gained on the journey of becoming a cowboy. I couldn't wait for the school to be over so I can go back to the feed yard and participate in beef cattle production and the relationships I formed with cowboys and other people who are in the beef cattle industry who may not be cowboys but still crucial to provide safe and sustainable animal protein to America. There was a period of time during my transformation where I did struggle very much about identities. Am I Chinese? Am I American? Am I Southerner? Or what kind of Southerner I was for my case? Over time, the philosophy of Buddhism really helped me to ease my urgent questioning on the matter. Because eventually, I do realize no matter what identity I claim myself to be, at the end of the day, I put down my cowboy hat, take off my cowboy boots, and falling asleep by myself. What is self? Who's really able to answer that? When every night, despite whoever I'm with, or whatever I've done, or whatever I've been going through, I fall asleep by myself. And maybe that is me. And I acknowledge that while I was learning the accent and trying to southernize myself further, there were times that I denied to learn about other people. But if I really think of it, everybody have two or three meals a day, go to work, come home, and go to sleep. No matter what color you are or no matter what kind of identity you claim to be, it is the same way. Everybody is fundamentally the same. So on this journey of southernizing myself, it also made me more open-minded towards others, which is kind of like the opposite of what people really perceive of how uh, southerners would think of people who are different from them. At least for me, via this journey, it was through the self-embodiment of southern culture that I realized I'm not that special, and I'm happy to be in that way too. Through this journey, it made me pay attention to the suffering of American people, the earthiness of agriculture producers, and the humbleness of Southerners. It is these difficult times that make me realize how much I care of this land which I only spent one-third of my life. And I sincerely wish my journey on this land will continue, no matter how dark the shadows in front of me might be, or how brightly the sun may rise for tomorrow. Thank you very much for listening, my friends and partners. Wish you a safe and wonderful day. Bye. And you've been listening to Bruce Wang, and my goodness, what a voice, what a story, what a journey, by the way, to leave a place like he left, to come into a place like he landed and a deliberate choice by the way to learn and develop an affection for the place he was at 
Reminds me of a great Booker T. Washington speech. Cast down your buckets here. That all you need is right here. If you'll just get to work, love the space around you and love the people around you. The more I learned, the more affection I developed for the Southern accent and ultimately for the Southern way of life, the land and everything else. We're broadcasting from Oxford, Mississippi, just south of Memphis. We love the South too. So many people from here, from everywhere else in the country, having developed a real taste for rural and rural suburban life and the intersection of both. Bruce Wang's story, a classic American immigrant story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell every kind of story here. And today we have a special kind of sports story. Catherine Switzer was the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon. Today, we have her telling her whole story of why she ran it and what happened because she did. Here's Catherine. I was the first woman to actually register for the race and pin on a bib and go to the start line and run the Boston Marathon. There was a a woman the year before named Bobby Gibb who jumped in the race um, unregistered um, and I don't want to take anything away from her. But what is really amazing about my story, sometimes the worst things in your life can become the best things in your life. And that is that when I showed up at the starting line of the Boston Marathon. I was I was with my coach, my teammates, and it was a snowy, sleety, horrible day. And yet all the guys in the race were so wonderful and welcoming to me. And they were excited that a woman was registered and signed up for the race. And they would say, hey, I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. Go for it. We're with you all the way. And they were extremely, extremely motivating. And it was a wonderful wonderful time until the gun went off and then down the street we went. I was very, very happy to finally be running the Boston Marathon. And the official truck came by uh, and the press truck came by at the same time. First was the press truck and they were honking at us to move over because they were coming through and taking pictures, shooting from the back of the truck as we were running toward them. And the officials um, and the photographers just went crazy seeing there was a girl in the race wearing bib numbers. And they began teasing one of the officials on the official bus, and his name was Jock Semple. He was the co-race director of the race. And they began teasing him and saying, Hey, Jocko, there's a girl in your race and she's wearing numbers. I wonder what her mother calls her, you know, Kurt, Carrie, or Kim. And they were referring to the race program because I had signed up for the Boston Marathon with my initials, K.V. Switzer. But the reason uh, that it incited the official was because they were teasing him about it. And he jumped off the press bus and went down the street after me and jumped on me and grabbed me and said, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers and tried to rip my bib numbers off. And my coach was trying to get him away from me and he was saying, leave her alone, leave her alone. She's okay, I've trained her. Um, And he swatted my coach away and said, stay out of this. And they came back after me. But my boyfriend was also running with me. And my boyfriend just happened to be a 235-pound ex-All-America football player. 
who was only running the Boston Marathon because if a girl could do it, he could do it. But he came in very handy at that moment because he smacked the official and knocked the official out of the race instead. And my coach screamed, run like hell, and down the street we went. And we we were really, really scared. I was absolutely terrified because I didn't know why this official had attacked me. I couldn't understand. Uh, why he was so angry and and I began thinking well it's probably because he's the race director he thinks I'm I'm making a fool of him um, and trying to you know sneak into the race when all along you know I officially registered because that's what the rules said you had to do but anyway um, the whole incident was captured in front of the press truck and the pictures of this incident were flashed around the world even before I finished the race People around the world were seeing these images of this girl running and girl being attacked by race director and then being saved by burly boyfriend. Because in 1967, that's what people love to think is that, you know, if a girl did something and was a damsel in distress, she was going to get saved by the knight on the white charger. And, and that's essentially what happened. But the whole story was bigger than that. And the whole story was a much bigger one about why women weren't included in the Boston Marathon, why this official was so angry with me for running, what was the problem here, Um, and wasn't the road a free and open space for everybody. So certainly it was a moment that changed my life. I often say I started the Boston Marathon as a girl, and I finished the Boston Marathon as a grown woman. Because the reality is you can't run 26.2 miles. That's the distance of a marathon. 26 miles, 385 yards. You can't run that distance and stay angry. And uh, through the next few miles, I tried to figure out why this official was so angry with me. And, 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 I, and I was really furious with him and I was afra- afraid of him. But along about Heartbreak Hill, about 21 miles into the race, the anger really left me. And it left me with wondering why. Um, and I said, well, that's because he's a product of his time. He's a man who doesn't believe women can do arduous things and shouldn't be allowed to do them for that reason, because maybe he believes that, you know, it would make us unfeminine or there was something socially wrong with this. It was just not appropriate for women to be in what was traditionally a man's race. Although, as I said, there were no rules written about this. Um, and I sort of forgave him because he was just a product of his time. But then I got angry at women and I kind of wondered where they were. You know, the longest distance then in the Olympic Games for women was only 800 meters, twice around the track. And it was always assumed that if a woman ran more than that, that something horrible would happen to her, you know, like she would turn into a man or hair would grow on her chest or she'd turn into some behemoth and her uterus would fall out. She'd never have children. I mean, the myths were just unbelievable. And I think all the women believed those myths. I didn't because I came from a family of great pioneers and and homesteaders and people who had done very, very tough things. Marathon was no big deal for the likes of my family. And so I was surrounded by the images of women who could do anything in my family. And I realized that the women weren't there in the Boston Marathon because they were afraid. They were afraid of those myths that they had heard and they believed those myths. And they didn't have any opportunities to prove otherwise or reinforcement to prove otherwise or, you know, belief and encouragement to prove otherwise. And then I realized if I could create opportunities for women so that they could feel as good as I felt 
felt very empowered and strong. If I could do that for them, then we could really, really change a lot of things. And you're listening to the voice of Katherine Switzer. I started the Boston Marathon as a girl. I finished it as a grown woman. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, that pioneer spirit she was taught, there it was for the world to see. Katherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we left off hearing Catherine Switzer's story of being the first woman to officially run in the Boston Marathon. And it seems almost, well, unthinkable now that we thought these things, but we did. And by the way, lots of doctors thought these things. We return to her story, though, and how she came to run the race in the first place. Running had given me just about everything in my life, and that, that I had felt great, I felt empowered, and it had reflected in many other areas of my life, not just running. So by the time I crossed the finish line, I already had kind of a life plan, which was to create opportunities for women in running, and also for me to become a better athlete. I finished that first Boston Marathon in four hours and 20 minutes. And I knew people were going to tease me um, and not take me seriously because in those days, in the late 60s, the only people who ran were people who ran well, and or pretty well anyway. Very few people just jogged. And people would say, oh, that's just a jogging time. And that's exactly what happened. The next day, the official himself who threw me, tried to throw me out of the race said I could walk it that fast. I mean, that was really a horrible thing to say on top of everything else. And the fact is, is that you can't walk it that fast, (laughs) not even close. And um, and so I said, okay, watch me. I'm going to try to become a good athlete. But let's go back and think about what got me there in the first place. Because I think knowing a person's history and why they were motivated to do something and how and who changed their lives is the maybe even the bigger part of the story. And in my case, I began running when I was 12 years old because I wanted to make the field hockey team in my high school. And I was a little skinny girl, prepubescent, very nervous about going to a big high school with with grown-ups essentially there. Um, And my father said, listen, if you want to make that field hockey team, you should run a mile a day. And if you'd run a mile a day, you'd be one of the best players on the team. He was really a very motivating guy, very convincing. And so I said, oh God, I could never run a mile a day. And he said, sure you could, you could do it right now. I know you could. And he um, helped uh, me measure off our yard. It was seven laps. And all through Washington DC, stinking hot summer, I ran this mile a day in preparation for the autumn when I would go to high school to try out for the field hockey team. And my dad was right when I tried out for the team. I, it was really one of the best players, not because I had any skills. I mean, I never even had a stick in my hand, but because I never got tired and I was in great condition and I could just about outrun everybody. So when I made that team, 
I felt really, really proud of myself. And so I kept running every day because I felt maybe it was magic. I didn't realize it was just conditioning. I thought in my kind of little childish brain that this is pure magic. Well, my little brain was, was actually 100% right because I've been running for 58 years and it is magic. You know, the, the, whole, the whole thing about running is not really just about conditioning or, or getting fast or becoming a good athlete. It's really about the sense of empowerment and strength and confidence and accomplishment that it gives you. And so here I was now going into um, my teenage years and going into high school feeling like I had a victory under my belt every day that nobody could take away from me. And that was really, really important for kids who, you know, you're facing all kinds of odd behaviors and meeting people, um, you know, and, and, and you don't know kind of how to make proper choices. And if you feel really confident about yourself, it helps you make a decision that's, that's a right decision and not a wrong decision in many cases. And it was phenomenal that also it, it perpetuated the, the concept for me of that if I could do that, that, like a mile a day, I bet I could run two miles a day. If I could make the field hockey team, I bet I could write for the school newspaper. I've always used running as an empowerment tool for myself to give me confidence to take on some of the most insane challenges you can imagine. And things I would never imagine doing or things that have happened to me, um, I've been able to both endure, prevail over, or continue on with even something better because I've had the confidence that the running has given me. It's amazing. In a bigger sense, that's what's the most important part of the story, is the transformational experience of running for women and how it changes their lives and helps them um, control their lives in ways they never believed they could. And to take on responsibilities and make decisions that they were denied for many, many years. Because they say, you know, if I can run a mile, then I can run five miles. And then they run 10 miles. And then when they run a marathon, 26.2 miles, they realize they can do anything. When I went to university after high school, I was running three miles a day and I wanted to um, naturally run at university as well. But uh, Syracuse University at the time had absolutely no intercollegiate sports for women, if you can imagine that. And I didn't know what to do. So I decided that I would ask the men's track coach and cross country coach if I could come and run on the men's team. Now I never would have had the courage to do that if I hadn't had that base all through high school of running. But I did and he was very nice, but you could see he was trying hard not to laugh at me. Um, he said I couldn't run officially on the team, it was against NCAA rules, but um, he would welcome me if I wanted to come and work out with the team. And I did, and he was very, very surprised that I showed up. This was the, on the eve of the women's liberation movement. It was the autumn of 1966. And I thought when I went out to run with the men that they would think I was trying to be in their face, that I was trying to you know, show that I was tough and I deserved to be on the team. And I wasn't that way at all, and they didn't perceive that. They really encouraged and motivated me and were very happy to see me and very, very welcoming. 
One guy in particular was the volunteer coach for the team who was an ex-marathoner. Uh, he was 50 when I met him and I always joke that he was really ancient, you know. <laughs> 50 years old, I was 19. Um, and he felt really sorry for me because all these boys that were running were scholarship boys and they were fast. I couldn't keep up with them at all. Um, I was running three miles a day. They were running like six or eight miles a day. And this guy, his name was Arnie Briggs, had been an ex-marathoner. And he was now injured. Bad knees, bad Achilles. So he decided to start just jogging with me. And as we jogged along, he would tell me stories of his ancient running days, including 15 Boston marathons. And every night out running together after, after classes, he would tell me another story about the Boston Marathon. And, you know, here I was, you know, I had heard of the Boston Marathon and kind of in the back of my mind, I always thought that that would be kind of a dream goal to one day have. But here I was every day learning about Clarence DeMar and Tarzan Brown and Johnny the Kelly the Elder and Johnny Kelly the Younger. All these heroes of the sport became sort of my Olympian gods, if you see what I mean. And pretty soon, as it always does in Syracuse, by even by late October, it began snowing and the snow was coming down and all the men in the cross country team finished their season and they went inside to run in the field house on the, on the indoor track. And it was so stuffy and, and smelly and hot in there. Um, I said to Arnie, my coach, uh, now he's my coach, my running partner, let's stay outside and run. And he said, have you ever run through a Syracuse winter? You've never been here before. And I said, well, it can't be that tough. Well, you have no idea. I mean, it was like a hundred and what, 90 inches of snow that year. And there were days and nights that it was 30 and 40 degrees below zero. It was absolutely incredible. But I kept hearing the stories of the old Boston marathons and Arnie and I would plow through the snow and plow through the darkness together. And he would tell me all these stories again and again. And finally, one night um, in January, I said, I'm so sick of hearing about the Boston Marathon. Let's just run it. And then this was the, uh, the first big turning point. Arnie, my beloved coach and friend, said, a woman can't run the Boston Marathon. Women are too weak and too fragile. And I burst out laughing. I said, we are out here running 10 miles in a blizzard in the dark, and you're telling me I can't run a marathon? And he said, 10 miles is not 26. And he said, a woman can't do it. Women are too weak and too fragile. And boy, did we argue. And I finally threatened him with not running with him anymore if he didn't believe some woman somewhere could run the Boston Marathon. And I reminded him that I had read in the newspaper that Roberta Gibb had run the Boston Marathon the year before. And he just burst out in anger and he said no dame ever ran no marathon. He just couldn't believe, get his mind around the fact that a woman could do this, this, you know, ultimate distance. And when we come back, you're going to hear Catherine's rebuttal to her friend and her coach and her mentor. And she was going to prove him wrong all by herself. Catherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories.
we return to the story of Catherine Switzer, and of course, she had been told by so many people up till now that, well, women just shouldn't be running in marathons, not certainly the Boston Marathon. And this is her story and her voice. And my goodness, what a voice. Let's pick up where we last left off. Her mentor, friend, and coach, Arnie Briggs, had told her, there's just no way dames should be running in any marathon. Let's hear Catherine's rebuttal. Finally, he said, look, if any woman could do it, I believe you could do it, but even you would have to prove it to me. And he said, in fact, if you'd run the distance and practice, I'd be the first person to take you to the Boston Marathon. And I said, hot diggity, there you go. I've got a coach, I've got a goal, I've got a dream. Um, And best of all, I've got a running buddy and I'm gonna show him that we can do this. So we trained and trained and trained and trained and oh gosh, I would say it was late March and came the day we were gonna do 26 miles in practice. Um, When we were finishing up the 26 miles, Arnie, my coach was so impressed, he said, Wow. He said, I can't believe it. You look great. He said, I'm, I'm convinced. He said, you know, uh, I'm really, really, really impressed that you can do this distance. And I said, you know, I think we mismeasured the course. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I think it's short. I think we should do another five miles just to make sure when we go to Boston that nothing can stop us, that we can, it's, it's, we can finish that whole race. And he said, oh, come on. You're not serious about running another five miles. He said, yeah, let's just keep going. Let's do another loop. So we're running now 31 miles, and in the last mile of this workout, Arnie began uh, passing out during the course of the workout. And um, I said, come on, Arnie, we can do this, we can do this. And he was just gone on his feet, just weaving all over the road. I said, come on, one more mile, come on, come on. I put my arm through his, I pulled him along, I said, come on, come on, one more mile. We can do it. And when we finished this last piece, came across our imaginary finish line. I threw my arms around him. I said, we did it. We're going to Boston. And he passed out. And when he came to, he said, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. It was an amazing moment. It was an amazing moment because both of us had discovered something really interesting, that the longer it got, the better I got. That when we went out to run eight or 10 miles and the guys on the team would come and run with us, You know, they were always pushing the pace and I couldn't keep up with them. But when it got to 12, 15 miles, we were pretty evenly matched. And then after that, they said, you know, the hell with you guys. We don't want to, we don't want to run any further than this. This is crazy stuff. And really what was happening was that, that as the distance got better, my natural attributes, the female natural attributes of endurance and stamina were really kicking in. The ability to have fat, more fat than men, convert that fat to a fuel source, to stay warm and have still energy over the long haul, really, really paid off. Even to the point where Arne himself, a trained marathoner, couldn't take the distance. And it was an amazing moment to realize that. And now it's something that's changing the way we're looking at female athletes in general. You know. For 3,000 years, the Olympics have been about strength, speed, power. Men, men excel in those things, in jumping higher, throwing further, hitting harder, going faster. But when it comes to flexibility, balance, stamina and endurance, women have it all over the guys. The problem is, is that for 3,000 years, we haven't had the opportunity to have sports. 
So, I mean, until very, very recently, in terms of the world's history of sport, it's only been in the last 75 to 100 years that we have been able to participate in, in sports and have sports in competitions and in the in public, etc. So what we're, we're looking at now is really an exciting era. The next 50 years are going to be very, very exciting when sports perhaps and events will be created that you and I can't even imagine um, that take advantage of women's unique capabilities. I would say getting attacked by the official in the Boston Marathon was at that point in my life certainly the worst thing that had ever happened to me. I was humiliated, I was embarrassed, I was made to uh, feel ashamed um, and I was second-guessing myself and my worthiness to be in this race. And it wasn't until I had that split second of, should I quit? Should I, should I step out of this race? Am I doing something wrong? It was just a split second of fear where I wanted to really go home to my mother. And then I realized if I did that, nobody would believe that women could run a marathon. Nobody would believe that women deserved to be there. They would say, oh, these women are just barging into places where they're not welcome and they can't do it anyway. And I knew then that I had to finish that race. And that was the biggest and most important decision I think I've ever made in my life because it changed the whole rest of my life. People often say, um, oh, Catherine, you were destined for this moment of running this race, of, of colliding with the official, of the photographs of the incident going around the world. Those photographs probably would have gone around the world, but the bigger story is what happened afterwards. Things happen to everybody, but often people don't act on what happens. I acted on what happened. I made the decision to finish the race, even if I was going to finish on my hands and my knees if I had to. And I wanted to prove to the world that women could do this. But it was the actualization then in the race itself with the time I had to think that I realized that if women only had the same opportunities that I had, an encouraging father, an encouraging men's team, a coach named Arnie, you know, who ran with me and encouraged me. Um, all of these things really helped me and most women didn't have those. So when I finished the race, as I said, I wanted to become a better athlete and I wanted to create these opportunities. Becoming a better athlete was the easiest part of the conversation. Maybe not easy, but simple anyway, because training works. I trained very hard. I trained really hard. Sometimes I trained over 100 miles a week, twice a day workouts, a 27 mile run every Sunday, and I got to be pretty good. In fact, I won the New York City Marathon and I was second in Boston with a two hour and 51 minute marathon performance, which even by today's standards is excellent. And for a long time, it was an Olympic qualifier. But I realized then that I realized if I could do that, how much talent existed out there that wasn't getting the same opportunity or didn't have the same drive or the same confidence to do that kind of um, training and that kind of work. So I then decided the most important thing is to get women official into events. A group of women, uh, myself included, worked hard at Boston to get women official in Boston. We were successful with that in 1972. And then we organized the first ever women's road race in Central Park, the mini marathon. And that was such a success. I realized that women 
maybe wanted their own events so that they wouldn't be intimidated by being around stronger, faster people. And I began organizing uh, and getting sponsorship for a series of women's races around the world, ultimately becoming known as the Avon International Running Circuit. And this became a career for me where eventually we organized 400 races in 27 countries for over a million women. And the data and statistics that we got from those races allowed for the marathon to be included in the Olympic Games because the Olympic Committee um, uh, had the data on performances, the data on international participation, and with sponsorship money, we were able to get some doctors to write up reports showing that women actually were better at endurance events than power events. So with this evidence in hand, we went to the International Olympic Committee and were admitted into the Olympic Games as an official Olympic event for the first time in 1984. And you're hearing Catherine Switzer, and what a story. It just keeps getting better. Her push, her drive to, well, find out what women can do. What were the real boundaries? We're about to find out more. Catherine Switzer's story here on Our American Stories. To hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Turn to Our American Stories and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter and you'll get stories just like this one. Five of our best ones each week right into your mailbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll get you our five best stories of the week. Sign up for our free and terrific weekly newsletter. And we're returning now to Catherine's story. She went on to do much more after that 1967 race. We left off hearing that Catherine had successfully gotten the marathon to be a part of the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, California. There it is. She's about to go into the tunnel. Now, the people in the Coliseum, most of them know what's going on because part of this race has been up on that big television screen. So they have been watching it. They certainly know what the situation is. And I'm sure they are right now anticipating the imminent arrival of Joan Benoit as she gets into some welcome shade and then very shortly out into the sunlight. When Joan Benoit Samuelson won that race, the American from Maine, When she came into the stadium, 90,000 people, you know, stood on their feet and screamed and cheered. It was utterly, utterly fantastic. It was something to me that was um, the ultimate in acceptance. But more than that, it was a television broadcast to 2.2 million people that showed convincingly that women could run heroically, strong, deserve to be in the Olympic Games, and deserve their equality. It was an absolute game changer, absolute leveling of the playing field in running. 
Everybody knows how far 26.2 miles or 42.2 kilometers is. Everybody understands distance because they've walked it or they've ridden a bike over the distance or driven it or even ridden a donkey in some countries. And when people from around the world saw women running and running so well, they all understood what that meant. They meant it meant that they had underestimated women's capacity for achievement. Um, and even heroism. So that to me was as important as giving women the right to vote because the vote was about our social and intellectual acceptance and this was about our physical acceptance. The Olympics are the ultimate really in sports recognition and now we were running the toughest event uh, in the highest forum uh, just like the men. And there isn't a tougher event in the Olympic Games than the marathon. So that to me was about the physical equality. And that's why it was to me com comparable to giving women the right to vote. One was about intellectual and social acceptance, the other about the physical acceptance. He has done it. Joan Lenoir, the winner of the first ever Olympic When you think then about the future, which I think about all the time now, um, you say, wow, we've achieved that. The rest is going to be easy. Well, the rest is never easy. Even now, all these years later, there are women in the world who are not allowed to go out of the house alone, not allowed to have their own passport, not allowed to drive a car or get an education. All the old myths still prevail, and women believe them because they have no opportunity to believe anything else. You only know what's around you. You can dream of some things, but you really only understand what's closest to you. So with that in mind, who would have ever imagined that my old bib number, 261, the number that the race official tried to pull off of me way back in 1967, suddenly became this magic number around the world, quite, quite virally, and it was really amazing. Uh, became a number meaning fearless in the face of adversity. People were sending me pictures of themselves running their first race, and on their front they would have their official bib number from, you know, the Tokyo Marathon or the New York City Marathon or whatever, but on their back they would be wearing 261. And when people started sending me pictures of their tattoos, I began to take this really seriously. I didn't know what kind of movement was occurring from my old bib number. So I got together with some friends of mine and we decided, what are we going to do with this? Do we create a business? And actually what we decided to do is to create a nonprofit. We created the nonprofit 261 Fearless as a way of empowering women around the world to take the first step in running or even walking. Because we know if they go out and walk or run and have somebody with them who believes in them and encourages them, they can overcome so much else in their life. Because as I said before, running itself is transformational and if they have the courage to take that first step and we can help give them the courage to take that first step, they too can become empowered and aspire to so much more in their lives. Running can change everything. It has already around the world. We've created a social revolution um, in North America. There are more women runners now in North America than men, and these women are not running to be Olympic athletes. These women are running because it empowers them. And this movement is going globally. 
And we are hoping that 261 Fearless will reach places, and we're working very hard on this, to reach places where women have no opportunities whatsoever. And they're going to be difficult to reach in some places and difficult to engage, perhaps. But you know, running has done it before and it'll do it again. You know, you're never too old, you're never too slow, you're never too big, you're never too unathletic to put on a pair of sneakers and let running, walking, jogging change your life. I've seen it a million times. And every time you go out and you watch a marathon, you will see people who you couldn't ever imagine uh, could do this event, 26 miles, 385 yards. There are people without arms or legs who are blind, people in wheelchairs, people who push themselves along, people who take a day or two or even five to cover the distance, but they do it. The capacity for human achievement is absolutely astonishing. One of the greatest moments in my life happened April of 2017, which was when I decided, hey, you know what? I'm still in pretty good shape. I'm going to run the Boston Marathon for my 50th anniversary. And no other woman has ever done that. There are plenty of 70-year-old, 80-year-old, even 90-year-old women who run marathons, but nobody has run one 50 years after she first did, which is just testimony to how few women ran 50 years ago. But to go through the streets of Boston 50 years later and to have all of those thousands and thousands of spectators cheering for you, many, many hundreds of whom knew my story and had big posters that they held up, said, go Catherine, go 261 Fearless, go women, equality for women, was really, really phenomenal. And it was amazing how easy the race was. Every mile got faster for me. And when I came across the finish line in 444, I was really only 24 minutes slower than I was when I was 20 years old. And I love telling this story because I just really want to encourage people to realize you're never too old and you're never too slow you, to get it back, to feel that sense of health and optimism, and to realize that the future of good health for all of us really may be staying active all your life. People always ask me about Jock Semple and what happened to him and did he ever apologize? Well, frankly, no, he never apologized. But after five years, um, we became best of friends. And people are astonished to hear this. But here's the point. He was a man of his time. And when we became official in the Boston Marathon five years after I ran in 1972, he suddenly became very aware, he had to become aware of the fact that women were taking running seriously, that we loved running. And that's what he saw finally. And he came up to me on the starting line of the Boston Marathon the following year and gave me a big kiss on the cheek. He was a Scotsman. And he said, come on, lass, let's get a wee bit of notoriety and turn me to these TV cameras. And the photographs of Jock Semple and Catherine Switzer making up on the starting line of the Boston Marathon was a photograph that, that really spoke volumes about how people can change. Um, and to me, how important forgiveness is. Because I really forgave Jock Semple when we came over Heartbreak Hill in the 1967 race. You know, I realized he was a product of his time. In a way, it wasn't even his fault. I visited him, in, in fact, a few hours before he died. And people say, whoa, that's a lot of forgiveness. And I say, yeah, you know, life is actually too short not to forgive. And over the years, we had become good friends. And I wanted to see one last time and say goodbye to a man who completely not only changed my life, but changed millions of women's lives. 
So he was, in fact, a guy who helped the women's running movement probably more than anybody else in spite of himself. And what a story and what a voice, folks. Sometimes the worst things in life, she said, become the best things in life. And my goodness, that Jack Semple tackled her and that she forgave him and became friends, a testimony to how to live a life. What a story, one of our favorites here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, again, go to Our American Network. Sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Our five best stories will come to you and you'll feel better about being a human being, better about being an American. Stories like these, they're everywhere. We'd love to hear yours. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. Catherine Switzer's story, the story of women and sports in America, here on Our American Stories.